Welcome to episode five of Turning the Goldfields Green, your weekly show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. It is produced in Castlemaine, about an hour and a quarter north of Melbourne, Australia. The program explores the unique challenges and advantages of working for change in regional communities and small towns. Yet the themes are universal in an age where the main challenge of our times is how to navigate the imminent threat of a warming globe. Salt, salt, salt of the earth. Salt, salt, salt. Grassroots, salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. A bit of a change of pace today while we wait for our climate activists to return from Canberra. This episode is one of my favourite types of show. It's a get-to-know-you interview with Terry White. One of my interests with this series about climate change, sustainability and global warming is who are these people who are doing so much and why do they do it? How did they get there? Terry White has been in this region for decades and kind of stumbled into his awareness of sustainability and the power of people to change things. But before we get to Terry's story, I'd just like to acknowledge that this series and this radio station, Main FM, and all of the interviews and production that I do to make this has been created on Jara country, the land of the Jajawarung people. And sovereignty was never ceded by these people. I'd like to acknowledge their elders, past, present and emerging. So Terry, tell me a little bit about your personal history and what brought you to a point where you felt like sustainability in the environment and the climate crisis was something that you wanted to give a lot of your time and attention to. I think that probably started with my childhood down in Williamstown, where my playground was the rifle range. And that was uh, taboo territory, a big cyclone wire fence around it, but it was huge grassland and a pristine coast, mangroves. And so my family, I'm one of seven, we lived in the housing commission down there, and I just found it fantastic after school to nick off to the rifle range. And there were birds and rabbits and and skinks and pelicans, and it was just being in the day. And I can remember coming home late and seeing a storm coming across the water, the cloud patterns, and walking in dense pea soup fogs mm. all the way to the beach. And our family would go and, and play cricket on the beach and so on. So that was our private playground. I just wish every kid could, could have that. And I, so I think I've got an affinity for the natural world and my old, the second oldest brother would school me on what bird is that and I'd have to sit down and he would say, he would point to a bird and I'd have to give it a name. And he was into a bird aviary and kind of just being immersed in it. Mm. But how did I get any further? I think I came across here after living on a commune in the northeast, newly married or with one toddler, and we lived in Strathbogie, just out of Uroa. I had a job fire watching from Mount Wombat, and I was paid 
to look around me and call in every quarter of an hour, otherwise the time was my own. So Wichita was flying around the, you know, the little cabin. And I felt I was in Nirvana. I did, I did rouse about eating, I did folk singing, a bit of graphic art and, and so on, just to keep the food coming to the table. There was an ad in the paper in The Age one Saturday, we were at a picnic, and it said there was a job in Maryborough to identify social and educational need and do something about it. I thought, wow, what a fantastic job. So we applied together, Faye and I applied together for that, and we got the job. And so I spent time in, in Maryborough doing just that, applying social and educational needs, no budget, just word of mouth, just saying, well, this is an issue. Anybody we know in the town who could help us do something about that? Mm-hmm. And we developed about 14 projects without money, mm-hmm. just based on people who had a passion for that or a skill for that or a heart for that. And one of the things that came up was dry land salting which I'd never heard of. It's irrigation salinity, rising salt content in waters was a, an issue in the irrigation areas. But what was a sleeper was dryland salting where people with farms were noticing that their crops were dying out in certain patches and that's because groundwater was bringing salt to the, to the surface. And that was a result of tree removal on hills. Rainwater was entering at the hills, going down into the groundwater and then coming up under the lowest points of the paddock. So an old guy, 92, wrote me copious letters about this issue and because there was an article on what I was doing in The Age. He says, well, if you're into social and environmental issues, you ought to know about salinity. And I said, Eric, I don't know a thing about it. So he sent me about three inches of government hansard with all of this stuff on it. So it was a crash course in this problem. And as a result, because at that time youth unemployment was a big issue. This was 1978. Unemployment was a big issue, particularly in Maryborough. And I read about in this stuff that my friend sent me, talked about the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 1930s in, under Roosevelt in the US, where unemployed people or people on the dole were paid to plant trees. And I thought, ah, we could do that here. So we managed to get a range of government grants. We got about $800,000 worth of grants by the time, for the decade we finished. We had two nurseries running across the whole of central Victoria. There were 33 shires in those times. That was before Kennett sort of amalgamated shires. So we had teams of formerly unemployed young people planting trees right across the region for a good 10 years. And I was chairing that committee, the 18-member committee. So that was my sort of chucked in the deep end sort of experience that communities can identify problems and communities can solve problems. And if you put a problem to a community, they'll come up with things that you didn't think of. And if you're open to the wisdom that's in the group, mm-hmm. you can do wonderful things. Mm-hmm. That was the, I guess, the immersion experience. And sometimes two problems can solve each other. The unemployment problem and the salinity problem yeah. both helped each other out. Absolutely. You were one of the founding members of MASC, the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group. What brought you to that and what were those times like? Well, I was still living at Maryborough when Neil Barrett, who started MASC, rang me because he knew me. I don't know from where where we first met, but he asked whether I'd be on a kind of a, a reference group for MASC. And so I would come across on, say, six weekly 
intervals and we'd sit around, we'd have dinner in, in Neil's place and we'd discuss projects and approaches. So that was my first association with MASC as it was set up. I'm not going to remember the discussions about what it should be called. Ballarat had Breeze, I think, a really clever name for Ballarat, Energy and something. <laughs> Very smart acronym yeah. for what they did, which was basically sustainability stuff. Yeah. And my advice was, well, if we keep it self-explanatory, it might be more accessible to more people. And I was happy to do that because I could see the passion and commitment that was being brought to that. And, and at that stage, it was funded, I guess as it is now, by largely philanthropic money, people with money saying, I want to spend my money in this way and employing people to do good, good stuff. So when was this and what were the other people involved like? I didn't know them. I, I knew Neil, but all the other people around the table I didn't know. But they were he, he kind of picked people with a mix of skills. And I remember Jody was one of those people sitting around the table. Jody Newcomb, who's currently the council, the council environment Farm. officer. And there were architects and there were people in marketing. and But I just know that they were very interesting people and it was difficult to stay on track because uh, we had some wonderful meals and wonderful conversations there. Mm. But it was really good that in those days, the I guess the thing that brought people together was the climate issue, global warming, and it was felt that there was a need to respond to this issue at a local level and not just look to Canberra, but to look to what we could do locally and there was exciting work with the major industries i know dean bridgefoot was applied and got the the job as the coordinator and he was had a terrific capacity to listen to people and to work alongside people and there was dialogue with the ceos of some of the major businesses and a, and a partnership with csiro to identify things that those industries could do that would save them money and lower emissions and that mains project was written up in the age, and I think put Castlemaine a bit on the map, a place where things were happening. But that was typical of, I think, the ambition. There were big ideas, and they were backed, they were, they were resourced, and there was the hope that we would be able to get Mount Alexander running on renewable energy. So a lot of investigation over quite a few years of potential solar farms, potential wind farms, and so on. Yeah, ex- exciting days. How have you seen things change in our region and because I understand that MASG was one of the first regional sustainability group at least in Victoria and but now there's just plethora of small and large groups all working ostensibly towards the same goal which is to stop climate change from taking effect. I don't know who came first. I know that Breeze was around, so they could have been before MASC. I don't think that much matters. What I think matters is that this message of not looking to others to solve these problems, but to to look at yourself first and your own community as places where things can really happen. And my experience is that being involved, you know, writing submissions to get funding, the governments don't often have good ideas, but they can smell a good idea And if you look like you're going to be able to carry it off, you can get money. And so I think with any problem, if you want a solution to it, you look to the part of the world that's experiencing that problem most acutely. And that's where you're likeliest, whether it's paid or unpaid, that's where you're likeliest to find the answers and the inspiration that you need. So fast forwarding to 
the current day. The, the local council has recently gone through a whole process of being petitioned and then having a forum to understand community sentiment around climate change and the request being that they declare a climate emergency with particular actions attached to that declaration. You were very instrumental in that movement, one of many. Tell me what, what you feel like is happening right now and the sort of increasing urgency as we sort of lose our chance to make change. Well, at the time, this is before Christmas, my daughter Ilka said, I'm, I was wanting to go to this meeting, but I can't. I've got another booking. And it's a, it's a group of people who want to petition the council to declare a state of climate emergency. And she said, I believe that that's a really important initiative. Could you stand in for me? And so I did, and I didn't know anybody. It was a small group, probably about six of us. And Greenpeace were running a campaign based around this petitioning idea for local governments. The first meetings were chaired by a worker from Greenpeace, but we shared leadership after that when he couldn't come. So it was a fairly, not a terribly hands-on thing as far as Greenpeace was concerned, but they were there when we needed them. And the petitioning was largely done electronically, but we, I think, took it further because we wanted to actually get out and accelerate the numbers of people signing the petitions. To actually strengthen our campaign, uh, we had a terrific poster made that could go up in shops all around the place saying, you know, we request Mount Alexander Shire to declare a state of climate emergency. And we asked that they get to 100% renewable energy and that they support a community plan to reduce uh, emissions to zero. So those were the three requests. And we just found that, that it wasn't hard to get people to put their names down because after three decades of international climate meetings where always you read articles about the increasing seriousness of this issue and always you read articles telling you about how the emissions this year are higher than they were last year and the number of hot days is increasing and the, you know the, the ice is melting and the bush is burning there was this deep anxiety I think there is a deep anxiety right across the Australian public about this issue so offering somebody something that they could do however modest put your name here and we were getting lots of people signing so that meant that we got out around the town and went to businesses and put the petition in places you know like the mill where people were passing through so it gave us a feeling that at last we're doing something and it gave a lot of other people a feeling of that nature too so when it came to present the petition to council we were a bit taken aback that we hadn't done it properly. <laughs> but I'm really grateful that as far as the council were concerned, what we'd done was an expression of public concern. So they accepted it as such universally. But then we ran into what we thought was a roadblock at that time because one of the councillors said, I'm not prepared to back this to declare a state of climate emergency until I hear from more people in the Shire. So the motion to declare a state of climate emergency failed and we when i say we all the people who were really keen to see the council act gathered on the footpath outside the council offices pretty some pretty angry and all of us pretty disappointed but it's the best thing that could have happened because it meant that in the time between that council resolution and the time when the day was set aside for communities to come up with their, have their five minutes worth and tell the council what you thought. All of that time we kept 
on with the petitioning and we kept on in conversation with councillors. We listened to their reservations, we wrote out considered responses to those reservations and so by the time the day came for the forum when people turned up I think around about 9.30 and it went on till 8 o'clock at night so they were sitting in front of people for nine hours and my hat's off to them. By that stage the people who were concerned thought ah I've signed the paper I've signed the petition but now I've got five minutes where I can actually talk to them and a lot of people I think 14 49 or something like that, wrote either written submissions or gave verbal submissions. And they were right, the variety, I went to two of the sessions, they were two-hour sessions. I went to two of those and sat in and listened to what people were saying. And I was just gobsmacked by the way people were passionate and people were articulate and people were looking at this common problem from 360 degrees. And I thought, wow, this is a community that can do something about this issue. And it's going to be really exciting when they get going. Yeah. After the, the information day, my family all took off to Wingan Inlet in Crow's Ingle National Park for a 10-day holiday and a break because all of our team, Mount Alexander Climate Emergency Team, had run themselves ragged around this. You were all volunteers, weren't you? You were all just all, doing all, it. Yeah, all volunteers, but an extraordinary number of hours mm. going into this on top of, in some cases full-time jobs and in other cases retired inverted commas people (laughs) putting all their energy into this so we went away for a holiday and that was before the petition was actually put to the council so we were away for that and I didn't know what had happened until we were coming out of Wingen and in the car I had a phone conversation with Laura and was told that it had passed that, you know, they declared a state of climate emergency and we were rapt to hear that. And then seven days later, lightning strike set Wingard on fire. So all of that glory and beauty that we had drenched ourselves in for 10 days was gone. The animals that came through, the, the big lace monitors that rambled through our campsite, the possums that uh, marauded our compost heap, the birds and the sea eagles, all of the, the flora and fauna were subjected to a furnace. So Ilka is still grieving over that. So we felt very keenly that this event of the fires, which is now burning, still burning, had underlined this idea that this is in fact an emergency. We are actually seeing the fruits of 30 years of neglect of this issue. So the question then is, is there hope? Can we pass on hope to the kids in the schools that have been striking about this? When when I see my neighbour with a little, you know, 10-month-old baby, I think the world's world's going to be different. So... Faye and I and Ilka and and most of our friends have been struggling with this. What do we do with this? It's one thing to declare a state of climate emergency. The other thing is to really absorb that and really allow ourselves to grieve about that and somehow to come out of that through the other side with our heads together in order to be able to work on changing. Because what nature has done is given us feedback that everything we've been doing up to date has been a failure. We've been actually running the life support systems into, into the ground. So I've been reading widely and 
and I've been watching YouTubes and I've been really relieved to find some writers saying this is the best thing that could have happened to us, that this, this is a gift, this will save us from going on with madness. Do you agree with that sentiment? I do, I do. It's hard to see it as a gift. Do you really feel like the, are they called the quiet Australia or the sleeping populace that has just been going on with life as usual, worrying about climate change but not really taking it seriously enough to enact big measures in their own personal lives? Do you think people will really change and they will really ask for change from our government because of these fires? Yes, I do. Whether there was enough to change, I, I, I don't hold out much hope at the federal level. And what I've seen to date, I place my hope in the grassroots across Australia. I think if you were to interview people, would take your microphone to, to up to Wingen and all through that burning area, I think you would be talking to people for whom the penny has dropped. I think that those people who have had direct experience of this are now in a different psychological state and they're open in a way that anybody who's going through a crisis is open to to the to the new and hopefully i think the new will say if we've got a, an economic system which is based on interest and continual growth we've got the wrong economic system because to have a uh, an exponential growth of the dollar in a finite world is just madness it's supercharging the wrong things so i would expect to see our economic system questioned. It wasn't during the global uh, financial you know, meltdown. Uh, it should be now. I, I would expect to see people um, saying, well, if renewable energy, solar and wind, cost less than coal, why on earth are we persevering with this? Let's do what the council did. The, count, the council joined other councils. I think there's over 40 councils that are going on for a power purchase agreement, looking for somebody who will supply them with 100% renewable energy. And it's the largest buying group, I think, in Australia. I don't know whether it's the world, but the largest buying group in Australia. And I think, that's fantastic. But can't we, as a community, say to all of our small businesses who've signed our pledge, go back to them and say, hey, look what the council's done. What if we had 70 small businesses saying, we all want to slip into 100% renewable energy. We'll, we'll form a buying group. We'll take it out to the market. And we'll go like that. So I can see in this atmosphere when quite a number of people are open and get it and looking for creativity mm. that this town could deliver creative opportunities which could mean that we smile a lot more and we think, okay, that, was, that wasn't too, too bad. <laughs> what are we going to do next? Mm. And I just look around this community and I think there's people you know, from the slow food movement and there's people in Harcourt that are forming cooperatives and there's a, there's a dairy of 12 cows started up there and there are, there are young people growing veggies and selling them at the, at the farmer's markets. You know, why are we trucking stuff in from California and Chile and South America into IGA? And why aren't we sort of saying, okay, we've got the prison and we've got the hospitals and we've got the old people's homes. They have to feed people every day and we've got young people here who want to get their hands in the soil, why can't we put that food need together with a labour force and say, have the hospital and the prison say, we'll buy local and we'll revive market gardening and horticulture and we'll help one another. 
So that's another possibility that I can see. What a great life skill for prisoners if they're taught how to garden and produce food. Well, I've got a history with the prison because I was a biodiversity officer for the three land care groups up, up our way, Nuggety and Barring Up and Malord. And we got our trees from the prison. They had collected native seed, raised it in their nursery, and they came out and planted it. And they had crack teams. They were fantastic. They were team A, team B and TC. And they competed against one another for the speed with which they could put trees in the ground. And they were awesome. And I've got nothing but respect for the prison officers that I dealt with and for the prisoners. And I think, yes, here's a way for a prison to actually create a new person. Not just a, a finishing school for criminals or criminality, but as a, an introduction to a fruitful life. You're listening to Turning the Goldfields Green, and today I'm speaking with Terry White. As part of the lead-up to submitting the petition to Council and asking Council to declare a climate emergency, Terry and Massett put on an event at the Town Hall with multiple speakers who all spoke convincingly about why we needed to support the declaration and sign the petition. The Peace Choir sang and so did Terry's wife, Faye White, who many locals know and love as a performer and the convener of the vocal nosh. She sang with their daughter, Ilka, who Terry mentioned earlier as being the reason he got involved in the first place. And they sang this song, an original composition by Faye called The Universe's Daughter. Beyond the stars 
forgotten how to Lost in speed and blind despair Hopelessly pollute and plunder But there comes a sound of hope Can you hear the children's voices? That song made me tingle when Faye and Ilka sang it that night at the town hall when I heard it for the first time. And it still gives me tingles every time I hear it. It's from Faye White's 1999 album, Singing Land Care. Its last line seems more potent now than ever before as our student strikers take to the streets and demand better and more from our governments, our leaders and ourselves. Back now to my chat with her husband, Terry White. What do you see for the future in this region? How do you see MADSC fitting into it? I was asked by the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group board to chair the planning group to produce the community plan for Mount Alexander in association with the council. And on that planning group, we've got a representative from the Central Victorian Greenhouse Alliance, got a representative from Hepburn Wind, and somebody from Sustainability Victoria. And we're very aware of the skills in this community. And we're really trying to come up with a way of um, enabling everybody in Mount Alexander to own and write the plan. So we don't have a group of boffins or experts or a small group delivering on the table a plan. Mm -hmm. We have a come all ye, if you're skilled at, um, you're a farmer and you're into regenerative agriculture, then we want to hear from you because you're the experts and you can write that section. If you're a small business person and you know how to retrofit a small business, then you can write that section. So it's basically turning the thing inside out and having maximum involvement. And Every householder saying, okay, I've got to have a fire plan, but I probably ought to have a renewable energy plan as well. And maybe there are other people in my street that could help me with uh, gaps and cracks and or help me with insulation or maybe by getting together and thinking outside of our silos, we can do exciting stuff and happy stuff. So what is the plan for that? Full disclosure, I'm, I have been invited to sit in to some of those meetings and be involved because I work at MESC. And it is very exciting and it's motivating because it's, well, I guess it's empowering, isn't it? Because it's giving us channels from which to create positive change in a really meaningful way and to reach hopefully the whole community, which I think is so important. Because often in sustainability, historically, it's been preaching to the converted and people get riled up and agree with each other, but they're not actually reaching the full community. And sustainability has had a, a weird sort of reputation for a long time as being kind of either really boring <laughs> or being uh, irrelevant or being full of people who are on a bandwagon 
and you don't really want to hear them lecture you. So I think it's interesting that the the whole of society seems to be slowly coming on board and recognising the urgency and the um, importance of it and seeing all of the people who presented. I, I went to one of the sessions of the council's forum and people presenting their five minutes worth. It was amazing to see each person coming from I'm from this profession and this is what it means to me and I'm interested in this and this is what it means to me and every single person is thinking about it in terms of their particular situation and I think if we can continue that sense of full community consultation that the council began with that forum continue that with the community plan that you're talking about which involves trying to get to zero emissions across the whole shire amongst many other things I'm sure but I think it's a way to channel people's anxieties and energy in a really positive way. And I think your use of the word positive is key to that. Because if it's driven, if this whole exercise is driven by fear, we'll get a, get a result. But if it's driven by love, we'll get a, a different re- result. And that's, that's really um, what this ought to be about, I think. To be, to be able to, to take responsibility for the situation, to grieve, but then to go on to work in the sea zone. You know, calm, committed, concise, centred, collaborative, cooperative, coordinated, all those C words, you know. If we can actually get in that zone where working together is a joy, and where we celebrate one another's triumphs, mm. which is what we experienced with the Mount Alexander Climate Emergency Team. Mm. We were really chuffed to be working together, although we'd not known one another before, and a whole range of ages from young to old. I'd love to see that process manifesting with the plan and being distributed. So I'd have, a, have a, an author's list that runs for 30 pages. <laughs> yeah. On that note, it's like I feel like if people are operating from a fear-based position, they're likely to close the doors and lock them or dive into a bunker rather than opening the doors and ch- chatting to their neighbours or trying to establish some trust and, and actually build a community. And I think that bunker mentality is part of why people are starting to build food systems that have nothing to do with the soil. And I think that that's giving up on the planet if you start taking those steps and we can't give up. <laughs> no, this, this is the place where we are, and this is the place to be. I've got a University of the Third Age spot for every Tuesday for a half a year. That group will be talking about, what do we do? What can we do together? What have you seen? What have you read? What have you heard? What do you know? I'm expecting, because I've been a teacher, and I know when a class takes fire, that it's fun. It can be fun. So I'm looking forward to working with men and women who've been around for a while and who've seen a few things and who know how to do stuff, seeing what we can come up with together. And I'm sure that's going to feed into, in some way, into our planning committee with <laughs> some good ideas. <laughs> That's a brilliant idea. And one of the segments I want to run on this show is recommended reading. So either books or articles that people would recommend the listeners tap into. And so maybe your group at the U3A would be a perfect resource for me. Absolutely. We'll have book reviews for you. Yes. I would love that. Can I recommend two books? 
Paul Hawkins is the author of a book called Drawdown. And that's 100 Ideas for Taking Carbon Dioxide Out of the Air. And somebody said, you know, there's this new U-boot technology to do this, and it's called a tree. Um, <laughs> it's also called grass. <laughs> but there's all of these ideas are working with nature. And Paul Hawkins, and I looked at a video this morning, he says, um, life is nature's default position. So if you, if you burn it, if you scar it, if you tear it, if you wreck it, and then you go away, nature steps in and reclaims it and enlivens it. And that's a hopeful message. I came away from a, a, a fairly angst-filled meeting last night with people who get climate. And uh, the conversations went on with Faye and I late last night and this morning. And then I saw this video and I thought, ah, this is what I want to hear. I want to hear that uh, I am life, nature is life, we are one, and we can do this. We can do this. Yeah. A, a lot of people use rhetoric like the planet's dying and, you know, all life is ending, but that's actually not true. We're creating a planet which will be too hot for the current ecosystems to survive, but new ecosystems will evolve and we may not be a part of that if we create a planet that's hostile to our own life forms or the life forms that we depend on, so our food sources and even the things that create oxygen for us. But even if every tree and everything sort of burnt down, there would still be microorganisms that would start from scratch. The primordial slime would win. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from, Ali, <laughs> but that sort of time frame, <laughs> that sort of time frame, <laughs> 34 billion years. <laughs> and then we'd be just in time for the sun exploding or something. Yeah. No, but you're right. I, I think we live in miracle. There's no explanation for this miracle that we live in. But what we know is it's infinitely beautiful, infinitely complex, and infinitely malleable. Like the, the, the organisms that have evolved to live, you know, around the thermal vents at the bottom of the ocean and top of volcanoes everywhere. Yes, certainly life's got it in, in the package. And you're right, we may not be there for the ride, but uh, life will continue. I'd like to see us stepping into an indigenous mind space where we, where we fully realise I am of this country and I am responsible for this country, that we, we really take on this custodial relationship and we learn from indigenous people how to be Australian and we celebrate what we understand through song and dance and movement and we pass that on to our kids. And we get deeper and deeper into that as a community. Mm -hmm. We understand more and more how to read our surroundings. And we know when that's in flower, then that's also going to be happening over here. Mm -hmm. We make these connections. We, we actually teach land literacy in our schools and bring kids up with that understanding. We actually continue the the education that stopped with white supremacists yeah, <laughs> yeah. and we, we heal that mm. we heal that we together with our indigenous friends in this community learn to deepen our understanding and appreciation for life what was the second book you were going to recommend um, Paul Hawkins book was the first drawdown 
The second one was Climate, a New Story by Charles Eisenstein. Charles is sort of making the, the comment that we can get fixated on emissions and we can get fixated on the angst of the story and we can look around for somebody to blame for stuff. And he says we're far better off coming from a position of love, we'll do better work and we'll be open to more of the complexities because it's not just carbon he's saying, it's the water cycle. It's the soil, the life of the soils. So he's saying it's a lot more complex and a lot richer. And so I found, I found the book to be a very stimulating book. I don't agree with all of it. He's very hard on science. He doesn't like numbers at all. I think numbers can help. I think science has been a fantastic help. Uh, and I think we can go from science into awe and wonder and mystery. Uh, just like we can go through other doors, through poetry and so on, to that. Yeah. So um, I'd like to celebrate all the scientists and applaud all the work that scientists have been doing in the face of ignorance yeah. over these, these decades. But I recommend Climate, a new story by Charles Eisenstein, author of The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. He's also written about money too yeah. and the redesign of money systems. So people who, who pick the book up will be like me, I think. They'll love sec certain sections of it. They'll disagree with certain sections of it. And they'll wake up the next morning and say, well, actually, I've come around. <laughs> that's good. Great. So that's Climate, A New Story by Charles Eisenstein. Now, this, this book, I, I, I took Climate, A New Story and Call of the Reed Warbler by Charles Massey, uh, subtitled A New Agriculture, A New Earth. I took them away together and read them together, and they complement one another very well. Both of them saying, the situation we're in is more complex. It's not just carbon, it's not just emissions. It's, it's a, a complex system that we need to understand. And Call of the Reed Warbler is great. If you're a farmer, it will be fantastic, because every chapter generally takes you to another farm, and it's a conversation with farmers who are doing wonderful stuff just walking straight away from chemicals, uh, no, no fertilizers, no pesticides, no herbicides, and just working with nature and working with diversity to restore soils. And as you know, you know, plants take the carbon out of the air and they can store it safely in the soil. And this, when you've read all 555, 567 pages, <laughs> you're convinced that this is what we ought to be doing. Yeah. And the book tells us that this is catching on worldwide. So I found it very, very exciting. And it, it puts you in touch with lots and lots of books that you can read mm -hmm. and lots and lots of people who are, who are thinking really interesting thoughts. Mm -hmm. And in, in terms of revitalising the earth, it's one of those joyful discoveries that, hey, this is not so bleak, this is fun. So there you go, that's today's episode, an extended conversation with Terry White, a bit of a get to know you and a lot of quotable moments there from Terry, I think. I kept on um, writing down little things he'd said, which were just beautiful. I hope that you've enjoyed 
listening to Terry talk about his take on the climate emergency and enjoyed hearing the sort of the slow emergence of someone who didn't necessarily start out with climate or the the earth as a priority, but it has emerged as a lifelong theme in the end. My name is Alison Hanley and I have been your host today. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you're interested in any of the books, articles or websites mentioned in the show, you can find links to them in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com. You can follow us on Facebook or subscribe to our emailing list to get reminders and updates about the show. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have ideas for topics, know someone amazing we should talk to, have a recycling tip, a green product review, or have a song recommendation. Again, email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. This program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and Main FM. It should be noted that the statements and opinions of myself and the people I interview are not the official positions held by either Main FM or MASC. We welcome feedback and responses to the ideas expressed on the show. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. Please be aware that if you do email us, we may or may not read your email on the show and may identify you by first name. If you do not want this, please say so in your email. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com